following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. I am so excited to speak to you guys today. I'm so excited. Actually, um, when we were doing we were doing the uh, the worship practice. And I was so blessed this morning that I had the opportunity to join the worship team. That was that was an icing on the cake moment. I kind of was like expecting it would probably be one or the other. And and Pastor was like, I'm doing the study, and if you you know that's up to you. So I I was so blessed, and it's interesting how the Lord did that too because I think it could be easy to get in in the head and try to be intellectual and prepare and just go over the notes and all this other stuff. And it's interesting how the Lord was just posturing me for just worship just praise maybe maybe that's the best preparation that we that we possibly can have right so interesting right because we come to this we come to this building that we call the church but the building's not the church right who who's the church we're the church right but it's interesting why do we come to a different place why do we come to a separate location why why do we enter into doors and come and with a heart of praise and, and shed everything else for a moment? Maybe this is symbolic of something. I think of I think of what it is like to worship and what it is to just shed everything for a moment, come before the Lord with the heart of, of, of worship and um, and just be in the Father's house. And um, today we're going to be, the message is called In My Father's House, and we're going to be looking at John 14, 1 through 14. But, but before we get into John 14, 1 through 14, we're going to have a little context. Um, we're, we're picking up on where Pastor left off, and we've, we've just talked about Peter's denial, which can be a, a, a troubling moment. Why, why would one of Jesus' closest disciples... Deny that he even knew him. He did actually know him. He did actually know him, but for whatever reason, we can speculate, but whatever reason, he denied him three times. And Jesus, in a spirit of compassion, in the spirit of lordship, and letting him know, like, you're, you're, you're a close disciple. I'm going to let you know what's going to happen. And, and I'm also going to, to comfort you and encourage you in the same breath. So, in John 13, um, John 13, 36 through 38, we can catch up with where we're at right before John 14, and it links to the last message that we went over with Pastor Colin. So if you all want to go there with me, it's John 13, 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So, if we put ourselves in Peter's shoes just for a moment, because ultimately in the New Covenant, Christ is is the person that we need to behold and look at and look to for 
all of our who we resonate with. Um, but if we put ourselves in Peter's shoes for just a moment, this is before the crucifixion. This is before being filled with the indwelt Holy Spirit. This is this is all of the gusto, but maybe none of the empowered, spirit-led strength to actually carry that out. So Christ knows his heart. Christ knows that Peter, it he could mean exactly what he says, but when 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 the rubber hits the road, when that actually that moment comes. Even Peter doesn't know how he's going to respond, but Jesus does. And he's letting him know as Lord, I know how you're going to respond. And his next words in John 14, his very next words are, let not your hearts be troubled. And I think it's interesting how we go from this almost troubling prediction and it's not it's not followed by shame or even uh, rebuke. It's It's followed by, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is aware. Um, believe in God. This is John 14, 1, 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. I find it very comforting that Jesus knows how things are going to go. He has a plan for this. His plan is is already well thought out. It's going to the cross. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he has to suffer many things. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to be tortured. He knows he's going to be nailed to that cross. He knows he's going to take on the sin and the weight of the world's sin and drink that cup for us and do that because he came to set us free. He did not come to condemn the world, but to set, to set us free. I think it's very comforting when I think about his heart toward the disciples here where he's letting them know, I'm going somewhere. You can't follow me now, but where I'm going, I'm going to go through death for you. It's going to look like I'm gone. And he's going to raise from the dead and as he raises from the dead, the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he is going to pour out into his followers and, and indwell us with his Holy Spirit. Actually, that's going to be the thing that empowers us to carry out those convictions that Peter's so strong on. So I think, I think, I see Jesus acknowledging the heart of Peter here, comforting him that, you, you know, you don't have the strength to carry that out just yet, but you will because you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and also take heart. There is an eternal implication to all of this. There, death death ha- is, is but a momentary thing in the scope of what Jesus is doing. And it looks like the end for a moment, but ultimately he is resurrecting and he is showing that life overcomes completely. He's also identifying as one with the Father because... He's going to the Father. This is this is being illustrated through this text as an eternal dwelling place. No matter if I'm in the body or not, I have an eternal home with the Father. Jesus is modeling the ideal posture when faced with the turmoil and the distress of impending suffering. 
and and pain and even even a death that he would endure his mortal body being torn and beaten and all to the point of giving giving up his spirit into the hands of the father i had a dream last night i had a hard time sleeping last night and it relates because i think i was trying to process through it this morning i didn't know what the dream really meant but as i'm kind of going through the like this the beginnings of this message i want to share this with y'all i was i was kind of tossing and turning and i had remember one very strong moment in the dream where it was very clear to me it was like god showing me i felt i felt i felt the distress i felt a, like a distress like i knew i was going to die and i felt like people were trying to kill me and i felt the heartache of that i felt the distress of that the confusion the anger the just all of the things boiling inside of me but there was also for some reason like i can't explain why it's like it's like the lord is breaking down the dream while it's happening and there is a knowing that this was akin to what Christ may have felt like and that he was he was showing that in the face of all of this because the next part of the dream was like in the place where people are trying to kill each other um you're going to go out and you're going to just love and just know that like the posture maybe the posture of everybody else is is killing each other but you're going to go out and you're going to love knowing that whatever's coming to you might be coming to you and it's interesting how as soon as that was the next part of the dream the stress of the the stress of the impending doom went away and that's like it's so cool to think about because I'm processing through it this morning I didn't really get that far in the processing and as I'm kind of processing through it with y'all now it's it's it relates very directly to what we're talking about and but that 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 distress was real and it was soul crushing and it had gravity to it and without a savior without god even in the dream with me that that was one of the i don't know like i don't have dreams that hard like that that very often and usually you know if i don't sleep i'm kind of up but if i do sleep i'm kind of out so this was one of those where i was sleeping and i was dreaming but it was i just wanted to share that with y'all as we go into the next bit of what we're going to so i'm going to i'm going to just give you all some questions i'm going to just throw out some questions so we we process through this together in my father's house are many rooms so where does the father live um before before jesus walks the earth where does he live while jesus is alive where does the father live and following his death burial and resurrection where does where does the father live where does Jesus live in the scope of eternity where does god dwell it's it's hard to pin down a location it's hard to pin down a a direction or a a linear way of thinking about this you can see the disciples hearts they're 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 trying to understand and they're they're really uh, one thing I love about the disciples is 
We can look at their questions from the outside, but they were close to Christ. They would ask him what they wanted. They, they would ask him the questions. And if we're going to ask anybody, we should ask the Lord, right? If we're continuing in the text, well, not continuing in, in John 14, but I'm going to take us to John 1 to maybe answer where, where does God live? In John 1, 14 to 18, the Word of God says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from the fullness, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So that was a concept when preparing for this message. I, I kind of was thinking about, okay, this is a notoriously unseeable God. When thinking about Israel and spiritually what it meant to worship Yahweh, the God, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, but the God of the God of the people of, of Israel, and um, and it was it was very appropriate that this morning we, we kind of touched on the fact that the people of Israel being being a, a children of faith, and in the, and in the scope of everything that's going on, God has God has a promise to the children of faith that. That he has a he has a larger plan, but it's 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 very hard to pin down where God is because this is an unseeable God. You can't see God, so he lives in the internal unseen, and it makes sense why it would be so so much of a leap of faith to trust him because you have to you have to put your faith. And someone you can't see, you have to trust something you don't see. And a lot of times we hear this kind of this, the the secular phrase "seeing is believing," but in the scope of the God of the Bible, Yahweh, it's believing before you see it. Who has who has faith in what they can see? Who has hope for what they can see? That's what makes that's what makes Yahweh a different God. But at the same time, He shows Himself to His people. He, sh- he honors his people. There are different ways throughout the Old Testament that he will show himself. He, I mean, he appears, he uses messengers. There, there's angels of the Lord. He appears to Moses in a, in a burning bush. There are, there are prophets who are commune with him in, in dreams or visions. There were ways that God was able to commune with his people and communicate with them that he desired to have a relationship with them. And that if we could maybe shake ourselves out of this idea of only having physical eyes, we see pictures in scripture of seeing with spiritual eyes or hearing with spiritual ears. Everything is not necessarily as it seems. And if we could see everything that was spiritual going on around us, not necessarily some point in the future, but right now, there there is a there is a spiritual eternal reality, 
And it's no wonder that Jesus came saying, Repent, for the kingdom is in your midst. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, as we see in the word in John 1, God sent his son to come dwell among people on the earth. So we actually have a person to look to, fully God, fully man, living a full life till he was 33. He was he lived and he died and he was buried and he resurrected and there are so many implications to all of that but just the fact that God sent his son God sent sent his son to live with us in the flesh that we now can behold God so the unseeable God the the key point here is the unseeable God is now a seen God we can behold God we can look to the scriptures and and behold the life of Christ and this is a person that we can actually have relationship with today here and now. When Jesus came and lived his life in the flesh, he said some controversial things. He claimed to be the Son of Man. Another depiction of a Messiah that was human-like, shown in a visionary experience, but a one who looked like a son of man seated at the right hand of the father in glory and the depictions of God and glory is also is also very interesting that we see him depicted in a human like form there are angels that are described as wheels with eyes and all this kind of freaky stuff but God himself the son of man the, the glorified God, the glorified Christ in Revelation as a, as a lamb, but also as a, as a man. God is a person. God isn't this abstract, floaty idea somewhere distant who stayed distant and expected us to follow all these all these random rules just to scratch an itch he had. Our God is personal. Our God is close. Our God is here and now. And he wants a relationship with you to the believer. He came to have a relationship with you to the person who is not a believer yet. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he is available to you right now. You can turn to him right now. You can... Repent. You can go beyond your mind right now, your your current way of thinking, your current way of thinking about reality right now, and choose to believe that God is here, and I can have a relationship with Him, and I can I can throw aside everything that would get in the way with that relationship with Him, and be fully immersed in a completely different kind of reality. It's a supernatural reality. It's a supernatural life. It's a resurrection life. In John 1, 12-13, we're told, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, 
nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That sounds kind of familiar. I know one person who we're told is very clearly is, is born this way in Scripture first, and that is Christ. And it is very cool. I think it's cool. I, I think the Bible's cool, y'all. I think it's very cool that to all who believed in his name, to all who believed in Jesus, he gave that privilege to become children of God and to be made in his image and his likeness and and to be those those image bearers that it's 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 interesting that we see in the garden the first kind of image bearer but that image bearer could give give their righteousness away and we see through the redemption and the life of Jesus that he's given us an image that cannot be rescinded it cannot be given away in the way that it was given away in the garden Is it possible for a believer to sin? Of course. Does that mean we should? Does that mean it's a license to sin? Absolutely not. The glorious thing is that we can come we can come in relationship with 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 God at any point and and be forgiven. Know you're forgiven. Live like you're forgiven. When you believe you're forgiven, you will live different. So, we have some other questions. The disciples are, are, are processing through this with Jesus. Where is the way? What is the way to you? Where, how, can, how can I go to God? How can I go to this place you're going? What is the way to union with God? How do I attain intimacy and relationship with the Father? Is there a way? Are there things I must do? How do I go to this place with the mansions? You know, you hear the, you hear the scripture and you, you, you hear, there's a, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions and, and, before I was a believer, and even in kind of the the infancy of me being a believer, it can be easy to think, man, this is a place somewhere far away someday where I go to heaven and I have a big house. And I'm not I'm here not here to reinforce that. Where does God live? He lives in our midst. And the symbol this morning was coming into this building throwing aside everything else that that doesn't matter right now, coming for, for intimacy with God himself, coming with a heart of praise that says, enter enter his, his courts with praise and, and thanksgiving, right? So we come, we give praise and thanksgiving, and we're, we're stepping and acknowledging our relationship with God. But the, this is the disciples' posture in John in John fourteen five through six, and this is sometimes this is you know this is my posture sometimes. Thomas said to him, "Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way?" Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So we ask all these questions. We got the we got the the what, when, where, and why, but it's a who, and we. Jesus, when we ask these, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this? Oftentimes, his response in that still small voice is, it's me. It's not, a, it's not all those other questions. It's a, it's a person. It's a who. You have a person with you right now to spend that relationship with. And as you walk, with, walk in relationship, 
if you know somebody really, really well, and that person, um, I think the example that I was using, like if, if that person is really into golf and you're spending time with that person, you might, you might golf. You might end up golfing. God is the God of heaven. He's heavenly in nature. You spend time with God, the God of heaven, you may end up finding yourself walking a heavenly life. And just like that consequence of having a friend who's a golfer, a lot of times you, you don't have to plan that stuff. That person could just be like, hey, I'm going golfing today. You want to come along? Like, I'm with my friend who golfs. Okay, I'm going golfing today. Our relationship with Jesus is so much more wonderful in that way where he can, he can give us that clear guidance. He can give us that unction of this is, this is what I want you to do today. And a lot of the times, the, I'm most in tune to his guidance and stillness. That was another thing in preparation for this today is, okay, so he says, I am, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But that I am stuck out. And then it reminded me of Psalm 46, uh, 10, the first, the first part of Psalm 46, 10. And he said, be still and know that I am God. So when all the storm of life is going on, there could be a storm raging around you. There could be wars going on. There could be famine going on. There could be everything going on. And, and if God's instruction to you is just, hold on, be still. Know that I am God. Trust me. The, the word of God to his people, I think of labor to enter into his rest. It does it say come come into his courts with with toil and like toil and effort and all this other stuff, but like labor to enter into his rest, labor to be still. If you're gonna if you're gonna work toward anything, come and into that place of stillness and intimacy with God, and realize the vastness of what that relationship implies for your life here and into eternity. So, I don't have time to get into all of the scripture that I was preparing for, but it, if you have the time and if you're really interested in in kind of a picture of what it looks like where Jesus is seated in heaven, read through Ephesians 1 and also read through, just if you can read through the entire letter of the Ephesians as a whole thing, Spend some time in Ephesians, but Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1 will let us know that that Jesus is seated far above all principality and power and rule and dominion and authority. Like he has set he has set everything beneath his feet. He is he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And then in Ephesians 2 we're we're told we're seated there with him. Through the Holy Spirit, through the sealed promise of the Holy Spirit, we're seated there with him. And the believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit is with God, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Not by works, so that no one can boast, but for good works that he's prepared in advance for us. There are good works. There are, there are things that we're called to do, and God will empower us to do them, and he's prepared them in advance. That's all from Ephesians. I, I am very much paraphrasing. I don't like doing that, but I just wanted to... I just wanted to adjure you to spend some time in Ephesians to get an idea of 
What does it look? What does a life of a spirit-filled believer look like in the order of being filled with the spirit first, and then how that plays out into life, not actions, and then I could be qualified as a believer. If we're walking through into John fourteen seven, we're told. By Jesus, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So here again, we see this is unseeable, unseeable God in Jesus in the flesh telling us, now you know him and you have seen him. In John 14, 8 through 11, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is, this is pretty big here because Christ is, is identifying in the Father. What does that mean, in the Father? He's also saying, the Father is in me. I imagine like this picture of intermingling, unity. Like if you have two colors of, of paint and you mix them together, it's not two colors of paint anymore. It becomes one color, and, and they mix together, and they're indistinguishable. And I think in his language, in his way of speaking to us, and you know, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What what is he saying to us here? There is an intimate intermingling between Jesus the Son and and the Father. We hear about the Trinity, and we hear about distinct aspects of God, distinct persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, how can they be three and one at the same time? And this is a picture of divine unity. How can how can a married couple be one? And why is this used as an illustration for the unity of Christ and his church? Why in his ministry does Christ constantly claim oneness with the Father? And why is that the point that is so controversial when he claims when he claims this, especially in the context of in front of scribes of the Pharisees, when he claims to be the Son of Man or he claims that God is his Father? This is for some reason so so controversial and even even blasphemous to them. And I think it's because the implication of this, is, what they say, is he's making himself like God. But the implication is less of a, a self-exaltation because we see the life of Christ. It's a humbled life. He came and humbled himself. He took on a body that has weakness. He took on flesh and bone that is susceptible to the elements, that's susceptible to temptation. He was tempted in the wilderness. He's not foreign to suffering, loss, grief. He took on those things. He humbled himself and his, his claiming of oneness with the Father was not an arrogant thing, but a truthful thing. He would not shelf truth to appease man. And maybe that was what was so infuriating about his claims. 
He's also letting us know that look at the works. Look at look at what he did. Look at his ministry. Look at the quality of his works. See if they're not miraculous in nature. See if they do not imbue something from another place, an eternal place. Where there where there is sickness on the earth, Jesus brings healing. Where there is where there where there was uh, Lazarus where you know somebody regarded as as dead and decaying he was brought back to life why doesn't god always heal cuz sometimes he's the god of resurrection and i'll say sometimes he's always the god of resurrection but it's in, it's i think that particular in lazarus it's they were wondering why didn't you heal you could have healed him why didn't you heal him god had a plan to for the resurrection and that's his glory. He shows his glory through those things. So he's telling us also in that in that passage, look at the works. If 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 you have a hard time like looking at Jesus and, and just believing a person is God, look at the works that person did and observe them and contemplate them and meditate on them and see if you are not led to the heart of the Father. So Again, where where does the Father live? Where What is the Father's house? How does the Father dwell there? Well, we know that Jesus said, the Father is in me. So the Father dwells in Jesus, somehow in a body, on the earth. So he's not so far away. And at, when Jesus is, loses his, his mortal coil, but momentarily, he, go, he says he's going to the Father. Well, when he resurrects, when they go to check the tomb, the body's not there. He resurrects in, 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 a, in a new glorified body and he's able to appear to his disciples. He's able to appear to many. He's even able to appear to, I think it was uh, Thomas, who's able to show himself, this is the place where, where I, was, I was pierced. He's able to show himself and even kind of comfort that doubt that, that Thomas had. If we go to 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17, we're told, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are that temple. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. This is, this is huge. This has extreme implications. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see that God can dwell in a body and the unseen God can be seen. We see the blueprint for a sanctified and holy life walked out in Jesus. We also can see that despite going to the cross that would break his body of flesh and bone, though none of his bones were broken, that he would be raised from the dead on the third day and appear to many, not as an ethereal wisp, not as, not as like a sprite or a ghostly form, um, but in a body. Thomas would be able to, to put his hand where the nails were and on his side where he was punctured. Um, Jesus would show us that not even death could hold him. He had come to overcome the grave and forgive the sins of the world. 
through belief in Jesus, we can share his very life and triumph. When you come to the cross, the cross is not the final destination. The cross is where, where Jesus made the way for us to come before boldly before the throne of grace, where we could receive forgiveness and then we could receive his Holy Spirit. We could receive God to live within this temple. So, starting off the message, we come into this house. We come into the, you hear people call the, the building the house of God. But then we see in the word of Corinthians that, that you are the house of God. And that God lives in, lives in you. For the believer, God lives in you. And for the person who, uh, who is not a believer, that's a, you know, that's a pretty weighty thing. That's a pretty weighty invitation of, hey, God wants to live, make his dwelling in you. He wants to live his life and express his life through you. You are God's dwelling place. You are God's home. You are the temple and there are many of you. All made in the image and likeness of Christ, made to live the life of Christ on earth, bringing increasing degrees of the redemption that he brought in the life of one man to the whole world. His life and works continue in us by his Holy Spirit. When the world sees us, they will see the Father. They will see the Son and they will see the Holy Spirit. That God is alive and his heart is redemption and restoration. In John fourteen twelve to 14 Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. Because I am going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Does that mean I could just ask for anything? Does that mean I could just, I go to God as the cosmic Santa Claus and just give him a wish list? I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think I think God is being very, very clear. When you ask these things in my name, I will do them. But he, what what example does he give? What model does he set for prayer? When we look at the prayers of Jesus, how does Jesus pray? What does Jesus pray for? How does Jesus pray in the name of the Father? Because when he's praying in the name of the Father, isn't it isn't it no coincidence that he's asking for things that the Father has a heart for? He's praying along the lines of the heart of the Father where it's already postured. When he prays for believers, he's praying for oneness, that, that we may be one as he and the Father are one. When we look at apostles later on, we see Paul pray for the churches. He asks he asks for wisdom that they that they may be that they may be the eyes of their heart may be open to the understanding. These are pictures of heavenly prayer. These are pictures of of asking in the name of Jesus. If I ask anything contrary to the heart of the Father, how will God respond? You know, I'm sure I've asked for many things that that weren't in line with the heart of the Father. And I won't say that God was always silent, but what I will say is he lets things plays out, play out in a way that shows you why his heart is where it's at. Why he has made you to desire the things that he desires. 
you were in in the letter of the Corinthians. One of the one of the popular arguments in the Corinthian church was, or maybe in in Greece at the time was, uh, food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food. And there's a justification in that of like, well, I have desires, I'm going to fulfill them, right? But what Paul is saying to the church is that the body is not made for immorality. He's talking about sexual immorality in in that passage. He's saying the body's not made for immorality. The body is made for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The body has a purpose. The body is not your enemy. The flesh, carnal mind, carnal thinking, when when we are slave to our own desires, when we're slave to the impulses and the, the itches, i got to scratch that itch. If that's who you're slave to, if that's your master, it, that's living in the flesh. But you can be set free from that, and your body is a, is meant to be a temple for the Holy Spirit. It's meant to be God's dwelling place. And then it's really awesome that we can look at the shadows and types of the Old Testament, of the temple, the tabernacles, the meeting places where where the fathers met. You know, the the, the scriptural fathers met with God, and kind of see these these are representative. They, they point to they point to Christ. But then, what does Christ model? Christ models, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off, and I'm gonna separate myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be separated for a moment. I'm gonna go up on this mountain. I'm gonna elevate myself. I'm gonna spend this intimate time with the person, with the Father. And this is where I'm gonna draw my strength from. This is where I'm, I'm gonna draw my guidance, my wisdom, my. The works that I do, he's saying, these, the, the words and the works, they're not of his own authority. The words and the works come from the authority of the Father. So Jesus is saying, I got this from a place that, that is entirely of a different nature from the place that I'm at now. And we are told in this final piece of scripture that <laughs> whoever believes in me will do these works too. In fact, they will do greater works. We see some of that. We see some of that walked out in the Acts. Um, but that's my that's my word to you today. God dwells within you, and what he was what he did in his life on the earth. You're called to do what he did. You're called to live his life, and he says you will do even greater works than that. So how do you learn how to do those things? We want to ask the how, why, the the what, where, and just walk with him. Spend time with him. Praise. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times where I'm like looking for a why or a what or a where, and it just, you know what? Just praise. I'm just going to praise right now. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what's going to happen next, but let me surrender everything right now. God, you're in control. And it's funny how things start to happen. In those moments. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is the challenge for this message. And, and if I can call the worship team to come on up. Um, the challenge for this message is... Is there an I anymore? Yes, yes, you're individuals. Yes, you're distinct. Yes, I'm a, I'm a mirror. But at the same time, it is no longer a mirror. 
It is Christ who lives in me, and I'm not just an individual living a isolated life in the world. I'm part of a body. And I also think it's really awesome how God lines up these kind of messages with communion because we're going to take communion and we're going to share in communion together and the bread and the cup. What does it mean to be part of a body? What does it mean to share another's body? Right? Christ gave his flesh and his blood for us and then he, he, he's adjured us to, to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Not as some weird cannibalistic ritual, but this is, this is a spiritual symbol of intimate union. Take him into you. He's in you. Realize that you're in him. What does this union mean to walk this life out? This is like, what happens when I dissolve completely and it's only Christ who remains? And I think we see pictures of, of the apostles. I, I think you hear Paul talk like this of, I don't want it to be me anymore. Just Christ. Psalm 24, 9-10 says, Lift up your head, O you gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's worship the Lord. Let's spend some time worshiping the Lord. And um, thank you all for your time. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.